protests in the Islamic world over comments in India became a diplomatic tornado for the government. Will they impact India's ties with the Gulf region and beyond in the long term? We're going to take a look at that. Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 65. Now, this week, the government dealt with a sudden diplomatic storm, one which it clearly didn't expect as a flurry of countries across the Gulf and other parts of the world picked up on statements made about Prophet Muhammad by spokespersons of the ruling party, the BJP, here more than a week before that. While there had been protests in India for some days, the government had not reacted to them. And the Ministry of External Affairs in particular seemed unprepared for what followed. So I'll quickly take you through what followed in a rapid couple of days, really. Social media in Arab countries particularly began running reactions to the comments, calling for a protest against Prime Minister Narendra Modi, a boycott of Indian goods, unless there was an apology or action. While this was not too worrying to begin with, remember it was on social media, there were some threats made. The first sign this was turning into a theological issue really came when the Grand Mufti of Oman tweeted about it on June the 4th condemning the comments. The Al-Azhar University in Cairo, which is very influential across the Arab world and the Islamic world, condemned the comments next. Then, as Vice President Venkaya Naidu flew into Doha, Qatari officials conveyed that his counterpart, the Deputy Emir Abdullah bin Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani, had to cancel the banquet in his honor due to a possible exposure to COVID. However, unlike diplomatic norm, because obviously this is something you can't do anything about, the deputy Amir did not suggest deputing someone else to host the banquet, and that began to worry the MEA. The BJP, the ruling party, then announced it was suspending those spokespersons, subsequently expelled one of them, and issued a statement that the party really re respects all religions and tried to really calm all the anger against them. Fears were confirmed when the next morning the Qatari foreign ministry summoned Indian ambassador Deepak Mittal, handed him a stern demarche, a very long public statement, demanded a public apology from the Indian government. Now this is really rare and it's even pre unprecedented according to diplomats for a government to do this so publicly, openly, while it was still hosting a visiting Indian dignitary. So a very awkward and possibly embarrassing moment over there. And then Kuwait also summoned the Indian ambassador. The embassies, both of them, then posted responses saying that the government of India respects all religions, that uh, it had nothing to do with these comments that had been made, and these were made, quote-unquote, by fringe elements. There was a controversy about that as well, because after all, these were spokespersons of the ruling party. Soon, other countries in the Islamic world began to issue summons as well, or to issue statements of condemnation, at least 15 in all came out, including in the Gulf region, Iran, Libya, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Maldives, Pakistan, and even the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which actually ironically called on India to rein in the fanatics, is what it said. Predictably, Pakistan's response was the most vocal, not just one MFA demarche from its Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a resolution was then passed in both houses of parliament. The prime minister of Pakistan made a statement. There was a call for protest then, as you saw, by lawmakers, political parties and clerics. Then there was the re reaction from the groups like the 57-nation Organization of Islamic Cooperation called the OIC and the Six-Nation Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC. They all issued 
strong statement. The OIC went a step further and then tried to link those comments to other allegations on minority rights within India, from comments about the hijab ban to bulldozers on properties, communal violence as well. Of course, in Delhi, the government rejected the OIC statement as well as the Pakistani statement and stayed silent for most part on the others. There were some, however, that they couldn't keep quiet about. And then came Iran, which summoned the Indian ambassador just three days before the visit of its foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, to Delhi. The visit proceeded as scheduled, but the Iranian side played up its conversations with India on the issue of the comments as the MEA tried to downplay it. So another kind of diplomatic tussle coming out of that visit as well. Now, In previous editions of Worldview, we have dealt with why the Gulf matters, why Iran matters to India, why these other regions also very much matter to India's diplomatic engagement. But let me briefly take you through the main reasons on India and the Gulf and the West Asian region. Of course, it's made easier by this data point at, on the Hindu website by my colleagues Vignesh and Jasmine. But here are the main points really that you need to look out for. One, trade. 16% of India's imports and 12% of its exports. Remember, the first new Indian foreign free trade agreement is also with the United Arab Emirates, with the UAE. Trade is a very important component of India's relationship with the region. Oil, 40% of India's oil imports comes from the region. And remember, Iran used to be a major supplier before US sanctions made India put off its Iranian oil purchases. Then there's employment. 28% of overseas Indians, around 9 million Indians, actually live and work in the Gulf region. So the fourth part is the remittances they send. They actually account for more than half, for about 55% of India's remittances in flows. And they really send them back to their families here. Then there are the strategic reasons for the, for the engagement. India has strategic partnerships with many countries in the Gulf, UAE, Saudi Arabia, many others all have been helpful, particularly in fighting terror, particularly since 2008. Remember, Iran is an important point for access to the Chabahar port as well, Qatar as well, and Iran are important for India's ties to Afghanistan, also with Central Asia. Then there is the focus of Prime Minister Modi's own outreach. Remember, this has been an area where the Modi government has made a particular foray since 2014. Prime Minister Modi has himself visited more than a third of the OIC countries, Former External Affairs Minister Sushma Swaraj actually addressed the OIC foreign ministers in 2019 in UAE before relations with that group really soured. And India has, has nearly hosted all of the Gulf region's leaders here. So given this position, really what are the main takeaways on the diplomatic impact of this controversy? What should India really be looking at? The first is really that the government and the diplomatic establishment can never underestimate the power of hurt sentiment. Also, religious sensitivities in foreign policy, and finally, the speed of social media, the idea that what is happening inside India will not be known outside. Many have also questioned whether the reaction from the outside world would have been as tough if the government had taken the controversy and the protest more seriously domestically inside the country, engaged with Indians on the problem much earlier. It was a lesson the U.S. learned, for example, in 2012 after protests over a movie on Prophet Muhammad turned violent, led to the terrorist attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, in which the U.S. ambassador and three other Americans were killed. And there were the attacks on Charlie Hebdo and cartoonists in Europe in 2015, another case in point. 
clearly says sensitivities over a religious matter are important, as is protecting freedom of speech, ensuring no violence or harm comes to anyone. Now, these are all part of the state's responsibilities, duties to its people. The second, while India's image has taken a hit in the Gulf region, the goodwill that India generates, which is a product of its diaspora that works there and the reputation of Indians working there, as well as India's rep reputation as a tolerant, pluralistic democracy, and all of this will remain in the long term. It is significant that once the governments made their protests and New Delhi responded, the matter seems to have been put to rest for now, except for a few exceptions. In its reaction, the Islamic world has also drawn a line mostly. That while India's treatment of minorities in Jammu Kashmir are a concern, they can be seen as an internal matter, but an insult to the religion, an insult to Islam, is clearly an international matter given adherence to the religion worldwide. Third, it is also important to note that this is also about politics. The schisms within the OIC countries are coming through. A sense of one-upmanship that drove Qatar to lead the way in protest, Iran to be very vocal, while rivals like UAE and Saudi Arabia, which would have normally dealt or prefer to deal with the issue more discreetly with a country like India, where it has such close ties, were pushed also to put out statements a day later. However, the most important really where India needs to pay uh, the most heed is to the lasting repercussions of such incidents in the neighborhood, because they are watched very closely by everyone in the neighborhood. Just like the Citizenship Amendment Act saw protests in Bangladesh and in Afghanistan, not just Pakistan, against the Modi government, possibly for the first time we saw those kind of protests coming out. The reaction from the Pakistan and the Taliban may be to be expected, but New Delhi must also watch when friendly countries like the Maldives, where the government issued a statement, then worked to block an opposition resolution against India and parliament, those countries must be watched very, very closely. Bangladesh has been muted so far, but there are protests over there as well. And my colleague Kalol Bhattacharji is in Bangladesh reporting from there. You can see his reports on the Hindu website. As Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina is planning a visit to Delhi in July, and this could cast a cloud over ties. A close attention to reactions in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia, also very important, just as Delhi prepares to welcome ASEAN foreign ministers for the Delhi dialogue in next week not just diplomatic ties, but economic. India's economic engagement can also suffer as a result of prolonged tensions on issues like the profit commons. And New Delhi really must factor in the power of the calls for the boycott of Indian goods or concerns over safety of millions of Indians living, working, and repatriating their savings from other parts of the world. In the broad scheme, the Modi government's takeaway must be a reasoned look how its domestic policies cannot be divorced from its diplomatic engagements. Eventually, they will catch up with each other. While the government was able to rebuff the United States, for example, for its report on religious freedoms with a chapter it had on it on India, released by the State Department on June the 3rd, it wasn't able to similarly shrug off the concerns of Qatar and other countries on this other issue just a few days later. So there are many lessons to be learned, many takeaways really from this entire controversy when it comes to foreign policy. I'm going to give you some reading recommendations apart from that Hindu data point I spoke about. I've written a notebook on past experiences of diplomatic incidents like the one Mr. Naidu faced in Qatar over the week. In addition, that US State Department report on religious freedom 
is on its official website. You can see that. And the Ministry of External Affairs' response is also on the MEA's official website. Now, previous worldviews have brought you the best in books on ties between India and the Gulf, India and Iran, and India and the region in particular. But the latest book out, which I urge you must read, is called West Asia at War, Repression, Resistance, and Great Power Games by Indian diplomat Talmiz Ahmad, who has served in the region and really is a mine of information about various political underpinnings of, of that region. Then there is, the, I've mentioned the attack on the US in Libya in Benghazi in 2012. There are books on the theories around the attack. There's also the US government's report uh, that has been published. It's available. It's called the Benghazi Report, Final Report of the Select Committee on the Events Surrounding the 2012 Terrorist Attack in Benghazi. And then there's this book called Under Fire, The Untold Story of the Attack in Benghazi by journalist Fred Burton and Samuel Katz. It came out pretty quickly, a couple of years after the attack that happened. Then some other books, and I'm giving you some sort of reading recommendations which you might find interesting and certainly slightly pertinent to the issue at hand. It's called Murder in Amsterdam, Liberal Europe, Islam and the Limits of Tolerance by Ian Buruma, famous author about the attacks in Europe in the previous decade, really around 2007. These other books look at intolerance, evangelism and other religions as well. It's called Taming the Gods, Religion and Democracy on Three Continents. Then there is a book called The New Religious Intolerance. It's about backlash across the West, overcoming the politics of fear in an anxious age. It's a book by Martha Nussbaum, very famous writer, journalist. Looks at, uh, for example, the Anders Breivik attack in Norway by a right-winger. Also other such instances there in the Western world is what she's writing about. Then this book on Pakistan, which really is a must read, an eye-opener. It's called Purifying the Land of the Pure, a history of Pakistan's religious minorities. It's a book by former journalist and politician Faranaz Ispahani. We believe she's editing a new anthology on radicalization and intolerance, all very important issues of the day and very interesting reading. On India, there is Modi's India. I think I've spoken about this before. It's called Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy by Christoph Jaffrello. And he deals with the situation in India when it comes to uh, tolerance and tolerance. And then there's a book called In the Name of God, A History of Christian and Muslim Intolerance by Selina O'Grady. So a lot of books over there. We hope to get to some of them at least. And do join us again here on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.